This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Let's start right now with our first guest, Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Hi, thank you guys for having me. So you've been talking a lot about this notion of scarcity because, of course, during COVID, we just can't get what we want. And so it is interesting to see how people respond. But then, with you know, now with all the protests and things going on, have you, uh, uh, is that one of your moderators? You know, I mean, how does all of that play into what you know about how people adapt? Well, I think it's really interesting to think about I, what I, the one thing that, that I thought of when I, well, I thought of lots of things when I saw the protest, but one thing is that I got interviewed all the time about, you know, what are your concerns about how people are going to respond to this pandemic? And I said, a lot of it reminds me of you're pressing down a spring, like we're all trying to do the right thing. We're all trying to wear the mask while trying to stay home. But I think especially here in the West, we're so programmed to be independent and do our own thing that I was just concerned. You're pressing down the spring. And when you pull your hand back, like, is there going to be this kind of ironic bounce back where everyone's going to flood the streets and maybe do a little bit too much too fast? And with the protest, I mean, there's lots of good reasons to protest. And I'm I'm not saying that's what that was. But, you know, the people I'm here in Tennessee right now, there's lots of people going out without masks, eating in restaurants less than six feet apart. And to me, I think it's just I've seen an interview this week with the governor of Texas who's just saying, no, people are tired of wearing masks. Like people really it's almost like they can't exert self-control anymore. And you guys know just as much about the depletion literature as I do, which, you know, circles into marketing. I think we're all very depleted. Nobody planned on staying, you know, keeping it together this long. Like we're just not built that way. And so we're seeing a lot of people engage in behavior that maybe we all know, you know, may not be in our best interest if we're following the CDC guidelines. But on the other hand, it just feels so wrong living this way, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think what's also interesting to build on your point, Kelly, is the idea that you have all this pent up latent motivational impetus to 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 be out to be around to live right yeah. and then so and and i think what happens is you get this exponential effect of kind of a social proof once you see everyone else is like flooding the the streets yeah. and hitting the beaches and doing the thing it's like okay two things happen one is like you're you're sort of getting the signal that this is okay to do and maybe mm-hmm. there's a second inference that's to say that you know uh my, my one role in this is not going to be so bad because everyone else is Everyone's, is yeah. is a part of it do, do you yeah. do you think that's part of this uh, characterization yeah 100% i my my like much maligned dissertation <laughs> research which kind of went nowhere was actually on um goal conflict and one thing i kept seeing over and over again in these studies in different ways was you take consumers and you give them any little justification to do what they really want to do, to not exert self-control, to not do the hard thing, and boom, they latch onto it. So if everybody else is doing it, boom, that's a justification. If I've been stuck inside my house for 92 days with two five-year-olds, as I have, that is a justification, right? Like, I actually think it's it's a testament to the self-control we all have that we kept it together or we have kept it together for as long as we have, because it's a big ask, really, to kind of put our turn our lives upside down and live in a completely different way. And I think, I think you know, to varying degrees, but a lot of us are trying really, really, really hard. And it's just tough. And um, again, you go back to that depletion literature, you, we can only do so much. You can only hold the spring down for so long. People want to circle back and feel like their old selves, right? I think it's really, these are tough times. But from a consumer behavior standpoint, I think what's going to be really interesting is like at the ACR conference, Association for Consumer Research Conference, 10 years from now, when we're all able to take a step back and be less than six feet apart from each other and talk about what happened during these crazy days. To me, what's really interesting is we get to see the time course of consumer behavior across this pandemic, which is something that we never get to see, or at least I never get to see in the lab, right? I get people in the lab, I manipulate one thing, I look at their behavior five minutes later, I say goodbye, I give them 10 bucks, and that's it. 
Whereas now we're actually getting to see, all right, in the beginning, how do people behave? After they've been home for a month, how do people behave? What about after two months? What about after three months? And so I think that this, I mean, there's lots of terrible things coming out of this pandemic and I don't want to even go looking for silver linings. I just think as a consumer behavior researcher, it's going to give us a window into kind of self-control dynamics over time that's really unique. And I am excited for the ACR poster session, you know, 10 years from now, (laughs) where we're getting to really learn some cool stuff about why we did the things we did during these crazy times. You know, that was one of the things I was struck when I heard your talk, which was pre-COVID and now Mm -hmm. subsequent in COVID, where I hear you're being, you know, asked a lot about your opinion on these kind of stuff. And one of the things that struck me is there you were in this survivor situation, which was a real world situation. And then you went into the lab and tested these theories and you actually found it useful to understand understand the consumer behavior in that very sterile lab environment. And I was wondering, you know, you're kind of alluding to it now, like it's somewhat shocking to me in a way, although this is what I do for a living also, but it's still somewhat shocking to me that the stuff that you're finding in the laboratory is really informing your opinion as an expert in this completely outrageous world. I mean, have you been struck by like what holds from the lab and what doesn't hold from the lab? Well, kind of, right? I guess the one thing that's been really interesting in a certain way is like the lack of moderators because, you know, if everyone's, for anyone who's not an academic who's listening, this is going to be totally boring for two minutes, so just bear with us. But in every paper you write, in an academic journal and marketing, you've got this general discussion where you say future research should explore, like maybe this won't happen on Tuesday, or maybe this won't happen among these kind of people or whatever. Whereas um, one thing that we saw in my first publication on scarcity was really this robust effect that when you remind people of these common everyday experiences of not having enough, they become more selfish. So that was, we saw that over and over again to the point where the reviewers at JCR, the Journal for Consumer Research, they were saying, you've got to moderate it. Like, this is boring. We're not going to publish them in effect paper. So we did. We were able to flip it, kind of drawing from my survivor insights and turning on the notion of impure altruism. But it, in my experience in the lab, there was this very robust main effect. When you've got people thinking about not having enough, they become more focused on themselves and they become more self-oriented in their decision-making and their resource allocations. So then when like literally the images that we're seeing of the targets, right, in March of 2020 look exactly like the stimuli we had in our experiments, I'm calling up on my co-authors. I'm like, oh gosh, this is like putting the pedal to the metal. This is going to road test our findings. And it was exactly, I mean, it was exactly what we would have predicted with respect to people. Like when there's not enough toilet paper, everyone's making sure they get theirs, right? There's not a lot of toilet paper sharing among neighbors. So that was, I guess, comforting to me in a way that what we saw that was so robust in the lab did seem to play out among consumers in a very strong, very notable way. But I still think there's a lot more to be learned there. Like what we saw people really hoarding their toilet paper and their Clorox wipes and their hand sanitizer. I also think that we do see generosity and sharing in just kind of different ways. And I think there's something to learn there, right? Like I do think you see a lot of empathy. You see a lot of people caring about others kind of from afar and trying to find new ways to manifest that, um, which is inspiring. Maybe we're still holding on to our bunkers, our bunkers our own, but we're, we're willing to help out in other ways. So I think there's stuff that can be learned there above and beyond what we saw in the lab, but it's definitely comforting in a certain way that I, I do believe our findings or some relevance to what I saw in the target. There is, I would think, as Barbara's saying, though, kind of an interesting potential intuitive link, right, between an impulse purchase and the strong perception of scarcity, let's say, 
What, if, what would you? What would your hypothesis be if you were to do that research, Thanks, or if you've done it all? That's it. That's a good thing. Yeah. If I were to do that research, that's um, well, I, I have been asked to comment about all like all kinds of weird stuff about basically like when people were buying tents, the five hundred dollars tents for their cats and like weird stuff. P.S. If anyone calls me and asks me to comment on anything, I'm happy to do it. I do not have any burden that I need to be an expert to comment on something. So I appreciate Barbara for extending me that grace and assuming that I was. But no, I'm just willing to talk uh, about things I know nothing about. And one of those is impulse purchases. And so what I was, what I, I keep trying to tie it back to the notion of, because we, we do have papers out there on scarcity and compensatory consumption. And so my idea was basically, if you feel like the world doesn't have enough stuff or the world doesn't have enough of what you need, you're experiencing scarcity in a lot of different ways. You know, if you can't address that directly, if you can't get more toilet paper, you can't get more hand sanitizer, you can't go into your office, whatever that scarcity is for you, you're going to try to find ways to compensate. And so I said, you know, buying a cat tent may sound, $500 cat tent may sound ridiculous to several people, but if it makes you feel like, you know, when you see that cat tent in your house, you feel a sense of control, you saw yourself provide something luxurious for this pet you care so much about, it's possible that it's actually a way of compensating for a kind of cross-domain compensation in response to the scarcity. So there is... Yeah, with scarcity, you get um, cross-domain compensation, this kind of fluid compensation, and also symbolic self-completion. The symbolic self-completion piece would be like, if I feel like the world is running out of toilet paper, I might buy extra shampoo. Like, I'm trying to find ways to be clean and, you know, kind of within the domain of personal hygiene, but a different product. Fluid compensation would be buying a cat tent if you can't get toilet paper. But still, for some people, like, I think compensatory behavior takes a lot of different forms for different people. And I think that's what makes it really interesting is we get to learn, like when we feel ourselves experiencing these weird, maybe not common consumer desires, like I felt this overwhelming need to bake my kids a tuna noodle casserole, which is weird because <laughs> I've never made one. Wow. And like, there, it's kind of a very mediocre, non-special dinner. But I just felt like it was like kind of comforting and homey yes. and classic. And, you know, I'm sure it was some sort of compensatory behavior I was trying to balance out. Well, whenever. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. And if people want to learn more about your research, where can they go to keep up with your work? Uh, they can go to my website, profgoldsmith.com, which I bought because it was cheaper than kellygoldsmith.com. It was a whole $20. <laughs> uh, on all the socials, I'm at profgoldsmith, which was available. Uh, and yeah, that's where you can find me. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you. That was great. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.